When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, on the 5th and 6th of June, 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over five thousand attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. Hi, I'm Ral Powell and welcome to my show, The Journeyman, where every week I take you on that journey into the very nexus of the worlds of macro, crypto, and the exponential age of technology. Now, as a macro investor, one of the most important things you can do, in fact, you must do, it's an imperative, is to hold alternative views in your head and assess probabilities. I see on Twitter people who are insecure in their views fighting with people who have alternative views. You shouldn't do that. Of course, you should be insecure with your views because you should listen to other people's views. And so you can adjust accordingly. And that's incredibly important to do. And you should do it from trusted sources, people who challenge your thought process. So for me, an old friend of mine, I really respect that I've followed since the early 90s when he was on the Barons round table and he was like amazing him and Jimmy Rogers and a whole bunch of others is Felix Sula. Felix is a fabulous thinker, independent thinker, and somebody I really, really respect. But he has a similar assessment of me of how broken the system is, but he sees different outcomes than I do. And I think that's really important because I need to attach probabilities to these outcomes. Um, and so I want to dig in with Felix about where this could all be going. Where is my ideas wrong? My job is not to create a debate show. My job is to listen. The more we all listen, the better we'll be. The more we take notes and add them to our frameworks and to say, well, here's the opposing view. I attach this probability. In your trade ideas, you should be thinking like that. So your trade idea, you lay out your own ideas, but then you add in counter evidence. And you kind of wait it and you keep going back to these things and saying, could this be right? Could this be wrong? The hard part is not to get overly confused because there's two diametrically opposed views. That's normal. You just have to learn what confidence do I have in my own view? If you don't have confidence, then you shouldn't be investing in that particular opportunity set um, or you wait for clarification. But obviously waiting for clarification can often be too late because then the opportunity is played out. Because it's usually when people don't see the opportunity 
when the opportunity really arises. Anyway, let's have a conversation with Felix Zulov. Join me, Raoul Pal, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto, and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. Felix, fabulous to see you back on Real Vision. My pleasure, Raoul. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's always great to talk to you. We've talked a lot over the years, and it's always a fascinating conversation, so I can't wait to dig in. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. So I, I always like to start, well, first, just give people, I mean, a lot of people know who you are, but just to give people a bit of background, what you're doing, Zulaf Consulting, that kind of stuff as well, and then we'll dig into some really big picture views to start with. I Like you, I used to be a money manager and had my own company and hedge funds. And I sold the business and I'm only managing my own capital. And I also publish for uh, clients uh, throughout the world on macro stuff uh, from geopolitics down to interest rates, the business cycle, interest rates, currencies, uh, stock market, uh, sectors uh, and commodities, of course. And uh, and I publish about every two weeks and I uh, hold uh, several webinars during the year to keep my uh, subscribers uh, uh, on track of what's going on. I tell you, you've got a huge fan in Arthur Hayes. I realize that he calls me daddy. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, anyway. He's like your single best promoter, Felix. He's always out there talking about your work. Okay, okay. He's an expert on, uh, on the crypto side which i'm not i uh, i'm not uh, deep into that but i know you are yeah and he's um, arthur's also you know he's a traditional finance guy as well so he's a macro guy at heart as we all are um so let's talk about your bigger picture views before we drill into where we are just to level set people's understanding how you see the world we're living in now because there's a lot of complexity and uh, i think people will really appreciate hearing I have to start with the geopolitical setup uh, because the geopolitical world order has changed uh, for many decades. Actually, since World War II, we had a unipolar world in the Western world, unipolar system uh, that was very US-centric and the US was a hegemon and the US could really move and shake the world the way they liked. And when the wolf came down and, uh, and, and we globalized, it was a US-centric unipolar world, uh, world order. And I think the Americans and the Europeans are the only ones who haven't caught it that it's over. That game is over. We are now in a disorder trying to look for a new multipolar world order. Because there are challenges coming up. Uh, China is challenging and rivaling uh, the, the US. And there is a conflict of interests. And uh, it's about power and influence uh, and rivalry. And uh, I started to write about the coming wars in 2018. And, and people laughed at me. And, and here we are. And I think we will see more of the wars. Because the world policeman is considered weak. And when the U.S. foreign minister uh, is kept waiting in front of uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia, the, the mover and shaker there, 
uh, it tells you it tells you that the respect has gone down. And when <clears throat> Blinken travels to uh, uh, Turkey and uh, he's not received by Erdogan, he's not received by the prime minister, not by the foreign minister, and eventually he's received by the deputy mayor of Istanbul. That tells you what's going on in the world. And I think uh, I think the Americans are not aware of this, and the Europeans are also not aware of this. They just hide behind the, the big friend uh, over overseas, and and that's what it is. This all means that everybody is trying to reposition itself in an upcoming new world order, and that new world order will be found by going through a lot of stressful moments and uh, it could be sorted out in diplomacy but if it's not sorted out in diplomacy then it's sorted out in wars and i recently talked to uh, neil ferguson uh, who uh, now has a very similar view than i have uh, on the world and uh, and and he was much more moderate uh, uh, a year ago and and he said, when I asked him, where are those diplomats? He said, there aren't any. We don't have them. So therefore, the risk of war, of continued war and intensifying war and conflict is very high. Uh, you also have to understand that if that is the situation as I describe it, then all the underlying conflicts that were on, underneath the surface so far, like in Azerbaijan and Armenia, or in Guyana, or in Serbia, or what have you, will eventually come to the surface because they do not respect the former leader anymore and they feel they can uh, act as they like. Yeah, because it feels like the policeman is not on his beat anymore. The policeman is gone. The big gorilla around the block is very weak. And therefore, uh, it's a different world. It's a very volatile and unstable world uh, in geopolitical terms. And geopolitics for the financial markets usually is not of great importance. When you have an event, it's for one day or two days or so, and then it is back to normal. But this time, I think it really begins to impact the longer term structural setup of the world economy. And that means the uh, intensifying rivalry will lead to more sanctions, uh, more protectionism, more nationalism, and things like that. And that is going to make business much more difficult for multinational companies operating throughout the world. And uh, and I think the market is not uh, discounting that yet. And when you look at it historically, the market only priced that in with a time lag. It is not a leading factor in structural shifts. It is a leading factor in cyclical shifts, but not in structural shifts. And I think uh, investors should be aware of that because at some point of time, that will get priced into the markets and will lead to higher inflation and lower, uh, lower valuation, higher interest rates and things like that. That's the world we operate in. And in that world, we have a business cycle uh, and that business cycle uh, has been highly distorted by the pandemic. And we are still trying to sort things out. Uh, and uh, the market is now celebrating uh, a, a more dovish Fed. 
uh, I think uh, the market doesn't understand yet that um, interest rates uh, can decline and so can stock prices together with interest rates. So if we have a soft landing next year, then declining interest rates are very bullish for the markets. If we have a recession next year, then we have declining interest rates and declining stock prices at some point of time. And uh, when you look at it historically, soft landings are very rare and soft landing for next year is a major consensus. So when I look at what the, the global fund managers are saying and what the major consensus is and how money is positioned, it is very long bonds, very aggressive in declining interest rates and very bullish stocks and soft landing. That's the big picture and that's how the world is uh, positioned. I think over the year end, uh, you see from the late October lows, you see a medium term up leg. You think it's the third medium term up leg and the normal bull cycle has three up legs. Disbelief, belief, overbelief. And I think we are going or we are now in the getting the overbelief phase that will probably peak sometimes in the first quarter. I cannot say uh, early or late uh, first quarter. I'm leaning to late first quarter because the momentum is quite good. And uh, <clears throat> the liquidity situation over year end is relatively generous. The Fed probably underestimated bank reserves and, uh, and they didn't want to run into a, a tightness problem uh, over year end. And therefore, like in Y2K, uh, in 2000, 99, 2000, they are providing liquidity generously and the decline in reverse repos is adding, etc. And this creates the ammunition of markets going higher. Uh, if we extrapolate the decline in reverse repos, which has been the major contributor to uh, liquidity growth for financial markets, uh, then the decline should be over by late first quarter early second quarter. So I think uh, coming to late first quarter or so, uh, the markets will peak, uh, top out uh, at uh, new highs in most cases in Europe, uh, as well as in the US, uh, maybe also Japan, uh, not in the emerging markets except uh, for India and Brazil. And, and then I think we are in for um, surprisingly weak uh, business numbers. I see the first, let's say, four months of the economy uh, rather surprising on the upside and the rest of the year surprising on the downside. I think we will have two uh, different periods. Uh, so usually when you have such a strong consensus of a soft landing, it's like when all the forecasts and experts agree something else is going to happen. And I think in the first in the first part, we will see a stronger economy than expected. And in the second part, a weaker economy than is expected. And uh, a weaker economy, you, you have now an underlying slowing, uh, you know, a smooth trend is slowing. Uh, and that leads to lower inflation rates and the market takes it as very bullish. But with declining inflation rates and softer pricing, you also will get softer volume. And uh, that will hurt earnings. 
Normally in a recession, earnings decline 25%. I wouldn't go that far. It could be less than that. It could be 10%. But if you take out, uh, let's say, 10% decline and the 16 times uh, PE on the market, you come up with 3,500. And I think what is very unique about this market is the excessive concentration. We have several times in the history of the stock markets, we have had a large concentration in a few stocks, but the nifty 50 were 50 stocks. Uh, you know, uh, the magnificent seven are seven stocks. And in the TMT craziness and bubble, uh, there were probably about uh, 50 to 70 stocks. Uh, altogether, and uh, most of them declined between 50 and 90 percent uh, thereafter, and so did the Nifty 50s. And I think um, you know the great, the magnificent seven are wonderful companies, but they are wonderful companies at half the valuation. Uh, uh, there's not, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the problem people do not understand is that the market today does does not relate so much to the underlying economy as it relates to liquidity. And, uh, and, and when liquidity changes, which I do expect uh, in, uh, late first, from late first quarter on, uh, if not sooner, then, then I think what went up so much will go down as much. Because if you wanted to perform in line with the market, you had to own those stocks. When you look at the world index and today's markets as they work is the individual doesn't manage the money himself. He gives the money as a majority of individuals, gives the money, he mandates a money manager and the money manager either indexes or he is a closet indexer. You know, that means that 80% of the money managed today is benchmark oriented, I would say. Now, if somewhere in the world, somebody mandates someone and says, you know, index world equity fund, then almost two thirds of that money goes to the US. And out of that money, um, one third goes into seven stocks. So we have such an extreme concentration that once the market turns down, uh, and money managers have to sell because they have redemptions, they have to finance redemptions, or they have to raise cash. There is no other way than to sell those stocks. And that could exaggerate the decline on the downside. That has nothing to do with the real economy, just with the technical setup of the market. I think investors should be aware of that. So I, I, I guess that from a high in uh, the early part of the year, we will then have a nasty decline. Um, I do not know when it ends, uh, maybe in the third quarter or whatever. Uh, and we will have a year that is one of the few years in the history where we have an important new high and an important low. That is rare. It has only occurred more often in recent years. We had one in 22, we had one in 20, we had one in 18. Uh, then you have to go further back to 87 and even further back to 62. Uh, and then I think uh, 37 was another one. 
and uh, and and this is very rare and it speaks of high volatility and that we had it in recent years really alludes to what i said at the beginning of this decade that this decade will be a roller coaster for the markets and investors have to try to time uh, the markets to some degree the mini cycles uh, because if you can cut out 50 percent of the downside you are a hero you see uh and and that's what i'm trying that's what i'm trying to do for my subscribers a whole bunch of questions thank you for that how different is the magnificent seven i've been thinking through this as well to the fang stocks so we had a kind of very similar thing through that kind of 2012 to 2020 period where it was a very small group of companies that kind of attracted all of the capital. Does this feel similar to that? It is similar to that, but I think the weighting uh, of the FANG stocks was much less. We have a much higher weighting of the Magnificent Seven than we had in the FANG stocks. Much higher today. I guess because Microsoft is in you know, some really giant sure. companies, sure. I guess. Sure, and it's a great company, no question. Let's talk through the liquidity scenario, the liquidity change end of Q1 or wherever that happens. So let's assume that the Fed have of the uh, yeah the the Fed have drained the reverse repo. Now ordinarily, if that stops, then they're still doing QT, so liquidity conditions tighten. Is there a chance a that they stop doing QT when that happens, and b is there a chance the Treasury drains the general account all the way through election year to buy votes? You know, the, the general account is an option, of course. So they have done it uh, before. Um, and they have done it when financing the government deficit uh, became a problem. So they have, uh, they have withdrawn the liquidity from that side. Uh, that could happen again. Uh, they are slightly below target right now. I think they are in the upper 600 billion. And, uh, and uh, the target is about 750 billion. That's where they should be according to the formula they are using. Uh, the reverse repos is a different story. Uh, the reverse repos was really built up because money market funds had such a tremendous inflow of money because the banks did not have competitive deposit rates. And, and therefore, uh, bank clients uh, shifted money from bank deposits into the money markets to get a higher rate in the money market. And there were not enough treasury bills outstanding they could buy. <laughs> and, and, and then they turned to the Fed. And what the Fed did is they created artificial treasury bills, which are reverse repos. And, uh, and then when the treasury uh, had to fund the large deficit, and they didn't do it at the long end because the long end was rising so dramatically and they feared to lock in uh, at the wrong uh, rate. They uh, turned to bills and they issued virtually primarily bills. They issued, uh, they, they issued debt primarily at the short end. And that made more bills available to the money market funds. And the money market funds started to sell their repos. And that was the decline of the repos. It was not Fed induced. It was due to the money market funds. Now, the money market funds uh, last month, I think, or the last few weeks, for the first time had withdrawals, redemptions. 
Uh, and, and that is interesting because that could mean that the decline in reverse repos could be over already. And, and if it would be, it would stop the inflow of liquidity into the financial system. So we have to watch that very carefully. Now, what about the situation with rates? So we saw, you know, go back, what, I guess, October, August, September, October, we saw that when the Treasury were building the general account and they had to finance the deficit, the bond market hated it. Um, and so then suddenly the, the Treasury slowed down. They started issuing bills and being really careful about it. And then the reverse repo started draining. They've got a massive amount of debt to roll and deficit to finance going forwards for the next 24 months. How, how do they do this without forcing rates lower and using the balance sheet? Well, they, are, they should actually do it now when the appetite for bonds is so high. You know, the bond trade... But they can't afford to do it at 5%. You know, that's the issue. Well, we are down at four now in tens. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it won't get... I do not know, but I assume that the Fed is uh, having the idea in mind that eventually they have to go to yield curve control and 5% is about the upper limit. Uh, and therefore, I think they are more relaxed now at 4%. At 5%, they were very, very nervous about the whole situation. And that's why they also helped with some maneuvering in the balance sheet and with the help of the Treasury also. Of course, there will be an avalanche of uh, new bond issuance uh, coming. Uh, and, uh, and in a recession, it's usually not the problem to finance. Structurally, the buyers are changing. The buyers of the bond markets, you know, the foreigners uh, have been decimated uh, um, the BRICS countries will not buy uh, new treasury bonds uh, and new US uh, dollar-denominated debt uh, because they saw what happened with the Russian assets and the dollar being used as a, as a weapon against those who do not behave as the US likes creates a lot of problems. And, and, and the Chinese and the Saudis and the Russians have started to work on the creation of a competitive system already that will eventually be launched but they will not buy into treasury bonds and that's why they are buying much more gold these days you know they are using gold and they may use eventually may use other commodities as well uh, for their reserves instead of treasury bonds so that creates a problem uh, for the us and it and it really means that the old currency system as it worked is not the same anymore. It's different. Uh, at least half of the world will not participate in the dollar as they did in the past. And that will become a financing problem for the US, particularly when you see how structurally offside they are in fiscal policy. Um, of course, there are domestic institutions. And of course, there could always be a legislation that certain domestic institutions, pension funds, insurance companies, banks, what have you, have to buy a higher percentage of treasuries than at the current level. Than at the current level, so they can legislate their potential domestic buyers if they have to, and, and they will do it. I have no, I have no doubt that they will do it if necessary. Hey everyone. 
We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Hi. On the 5th and 6th of June 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon, and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. And that's a form of yield curve control as well. I mean, Switzerland did this Switzerland did this two decades ago. They kind of forced the pension system into, into uh, Swiss government bonds. Um, and what you do is you cap yields. Yes, but the, the capping of the yields was not due to that. Uh, uh, the capping of the yields was due to the fact that in the old days, the Swiss franc was a very strong currency and it could be... And he could follow a hard currency policy of the guys in at the Swiss National Bank because the biggest trading partner, Germany, followed a hard currency policy. That is gone. And therefore, Switzerland cannot follow as hard a currency policy as they used to in the past. And therefore, the Swiss franc is also not the Swiss franc of the old days anymore. You know, it's a weaker currency. It's, it's still a strong currency due to the external accounts. Uh, with the chronic uh, uh, current account surplus, etc., but it is not the strong currency uh, that it used to be in the 1970s. Let's talk about the course of rates over the this cycle. So you've talked about the issue with liquidity, the issue with equity markets that could have, you know, end of Q1, Q2, Q3, maybe. What do rates do? Do rates continue to fall over the cycle? Um, because economic growth is slow, or does this issuance create more spasms in the bond market? How are you thinking through rates? If all the tightening that has been going on over the last um, year and a half or so works similarly to the past, then we will have an economic problem, a, a, a recession. I don't think it will be a very deep recession, but it, it could be a mild and, and long-lasting recession. And uh, because we do not have the excesses in uh, in inventories uh, and in uh, and in some of the financing segments as we had in previous cycles, so a mild recession. In a in a recession, whether it's mild or not, rates come down. So I expect rates to decline uh, next year, through next year. Usually, in a recession. Uh, uh, the central banks try to reliquify the system because the higher the leverage is in a system, and it is higher in every cycle than the previous one, uh, you have to reliquify, you have to do more to reliquify the system. And uh, therefore, the injection of liquidity that I expect will have very positive effects, uh, sometimes uh, from a lower level in 24 through 25 and maybe into 26. And that will be a great run for equities, and it will uh, be a great run for commodities. Uh, it will not be very good for the U.S. dollar because when the world eases, 
the dollar goes down. When the world tightens, the dollar goes up in, in simple terms. And, uh, and, and in that sense, um, I, I think uh, we will have a very cyclical uh, environment over the next few years and very attractive. Uh, bond yields, that's the other thing. You know, bond yields could hit the low sometimes in the second half of this year. And uh, the breakout point in the long-term decline on a log scale chart in 10 years, treasuries, was three and a quarter. Uh, so I think we could go down to three, maybe even slightly below that, uh, 275. That would be the maximum I could see on the cycle. This will be a higher high than the previous low, which was a secular low at half a percent. And from there, we go up again together with commodities. If commodities rally the way I think they will, and, and you know, uh, three quarters of the world's commodities are controlled by the BRICS. And, and in the conflict uh, world, conflict-laden world that I described at the beginning, uh, they will use that at times as a weapon against the Western world. You know, and, and that means that uh, supply could become scarcer uh, than many believe. It's not so much a demand push, it's much more a supply constraint. And then prices go up and uh, oil could easily go up to $200 in 26 uh, uh, or, or so. And if that happens, the CPI will not be at 3%, and certainly not at 2 It will go over 10 and then we have a problem in the bond market because then treasury bonds will go much higher than they have been at 5%. Because what we learned in the 70s, it is the second up cycle where the bonds really get crucified. Uh, the first cycle, the market looks back and values against the past. In the next cycle, in the second cycle, it goes back to the previous cycle that was inflationary and says, oh, we need to have a higher real rate of return. And therefore, in theoretical terms, it could go to 8 or 9% or something like that if the CPI goes to 15, let's say. Uh, now, if that would happen, uh, our system has a problem. Then our system, our system will enter a deep crisis and it will probably be needed that we have a deep crisis because otherwise you can never restructure government expenditures and, and income and the fiscal side of it. You can only make the restructuring cuts in entitlements and increase in taxes when you have a monumental crisis at hand. And I think that's, that is what we will get in the later part of the 20s. Uh, the move out of this would be yield curve control. I was just going to ask you that. It seems like that's what they did in the 50s and 60s. It feels like it's the same rule book. You know, in contrast to the 50s and 60s, we have a fiat currency system, not the gold anchor system. And that would go directly to the dollar uh, beginning to slump in a big way. And the slumping dollar would uh, be very bad for inflation rates uh, due to the imports getting more expensive. And it would, you know, it would take other currencies eventually with it because other central banks would do the same thing. So relative to each other, 
the currencies would be fine, but it would be a very inflationary outcome. You know, it would be like the early part of Argentina. I'm not forecasting that, but it it would go that route. And, uh, and that would be uh, horrible because it would create social unrest. You see already, I spend uh, quite uh, some time in the U.S. and I see that the U.S. is losing uh, a higher and higher level of the population into, I wouldn't say poverty, but these guys have to really stretch themselves to make it. People have been left behind. Oh, very much so. And, and it's getting worse. Uh, every year. And and I think it would lead to social unrest. And then you had a massive economic crisis, a fiscal crisis, a financial crisis, a currency crisis, and a social crisis on top of that. So uh, this is, it's going to be a very volatile second part of this decade, I, I believe. And uh, And I think if investors are aware of it, they can probably survive better. Uh, we will all lose in such a situation uh, in terms of purchasing power. We will all lose. But if you lose less than the others, you are among the winners. You know, if you know exactly what you do and you do it right and you come out as the great winner, all your profits will be taxed away. That's the way socialism works. And our systems are now deep into socialism. You know, just to recap, we think there's a rocky part in 2020, the, call it the summer of 2024. After that, the stimulus that comes, that plays through till 2026. But after that, we've got this larger brewing set of issues that are unresolvable right now that, that concern you. How could we thread the needle that it doesn't end up with this larger bust at the end? Because, you know, many of us have looked at this for a long time because we've seen this growing for decades, right, when we've been following the debt cycle and everything else. And we kind of thought 2008 was it, but monetary printing kind of cut it short. How could they thread the needle here or can they not? Well, you, you can, but, uh, you know, like in a market, you either correct mildly by going sideways for long or you correct by falling sharply quickly. And in that sense, you need to either have a political leadership that has a clear vision how to restructure, which is painful for all of them. It's painful for the politicians. It's painful for the constituencies, painful for the corporate sector to get everybody on board to make the painful steps to restructure government finances. Now, but they'll never do that, will they? That's what I think. Yeah, I, I think this is highly unrealistic. And, and you know, if you, if you ask the, the constituencies whether they uh, are in favor of um, uh, spending cuts by the government, say yes. And then when you ask them what, and you add up what they are in favor of, it's peanuts. But when you tell them about the entitlements and social security and Medicare and, and whatsoever, then they are against it. So, so you cannot in democracy that has gone as deep into um, socialism as I call it. Uh, you cannot make the cuts under normal circumstances. You can only make those cuts and tax increases under very special, dramatic circumstances. 
that are a monumental crisis. Okay, let's go back to something we talked about in the beginning, because I want to get your opinion on this, is we talked about China, the multipolar world, and I, I agree with that. It's written everywhere, but it's been very interesting. The recent move by China and the US seems to have temporarily made friends with each other. Any insights what, what's going on there? Well, of course, the Chinese uh, need uh, the, the US as the US uh, needs the Chinese. And, uh, and, and they have a conflict, of course. But, you know, even during war times, uh, trade among uh, some of the uh, enemies at that time uh, during World War I and World War II did not stop completely. It continued. It was reduced. It was more difficult, but it continued. And I think the same will be going on here. Uh, the Chinese are not interested in war. The Chinese are interested to expand and develop their economy and to improve the life of their constituencies, their citizens, because uh, the lifetime of the Chinese Communist Party depends on having uh, satisfied people in the country. If the people are not satisfied, they run into a revolution. Uh, so I think the, the Chinese do not want to fight, but if the US wants to fight, they accept it, they take it, they do not step back. Uh, I think the problem child here is the US and it's not the US as a country, it's the neocons who drive uh, uh, foreign and trade policy, etc. And, and they just have that uh, uh, view that the whole world must be like the US and if they are not, we use power to make it that way, you know, and and the Ukraine conflict is something about that also. Um, uh, the U.S. has been very afraid of the Eurasian continental plate integrating much more. Uh, the trade between Germany and China is bigger now than with German, Germany with the U.S., and they thought if these guys integrate, these are four and a half billion people, if these guys integrate more, we lose our influence on Europe. We lose our influence on Asia and we will not be number one anymore. And I think they used Ukraine to provoke Russia into a war uh, that they could sanction Russia and force Europe into sanction against Russia to break that integrated trade. And they are trying to do the same with the Europeans against China which will not work because it's uh, detrimental for their uh, survival or well-being. Uh, uh, Europe is a, is a large uh, exporting region and uh, they do a lot of trade with China and they need China. So there are all sorts of conflicts. I think China wants to have more influence in the world and they do not in fear with domestic policies in other countries, what they want is they want more trade and they want to expand their influence via trade and uh, and strengthen their economy by trade with other people. And they do it very well. I mean, the uh, the BRI is, uh, is a classic example. Uh, it has come to a stop because they are short of money at the present time. But that's the way they go and develop. And they want... They do not want to let themselves dictate 
what to do and what not to do by the Americans. And I think they are interested in business. Uh, she is, uh, she is um, a smart man, I think. He tightened control because he knew he would uh, eventually have to clean up uh, the hangover from the real estate bubble. And for that, he needed tighter control domestically. And he used some nationalism uh, to uh, uh, keep people buying domestic goods and less foreign goods and things like that. So I think he, I think they know what they are doing. They have a plan. Uh, but they will not be a locomotive any longer for the world economy for the next 10, 15 years. That's impossible. How, how does China deal with its economy? Because it's got a shrinking population and this absolutely gigantic debt. What do they do here? Because they're going to have to do something because of the fear of upsetting the people. How do they generate any growth? Well, you know, the level of income and the level of consumption uh, is uh, a fraction of what it is in the Western world. So there is still room to improve. Uh, in the aggregate sense, uh, China is a large economy, but uh, and, and in the big cities, uh, the standard of living is like uh, in the Western world. But in many parts, I would say in one third of the country, it's not there yet. And they have a lot of more to do. Uh, they have uh, overdone it in infrastructure, etc. They are probably 20 years ahead and they can, uh, you know, slow down. They have to push consumption. And to do that, they have to have um, a real income growth uh, for their people that they can spend the money. Uh, unfortunately, the Chinese have two thirds of their savings invested in real estate and uh, those assets are going down in price. And this is not very good for uh, consumer confidence and consumer spending. So there is a problem. Uh, eventually, they have to monetize uh, the debt. Eventually, they don't want to do it now. They will do it when the Western world does it. So they don't weaken their currency too much. That's right. You, you, you saw that even in the face of a sluggish economy, they hiked interest rates and they tightened monetary policy to stop the currency from weakening further. It feels that the Chinese economy is slightly out of sync. It seems to be slightly ahead of because they had COVID first and it feels like they've come out of sync. And they, as you're kind of suggesting, they want to come into sync with everybody else. So then they are able to stimulate at the same time, as opposed to stimulate when everybody else is tightening, which would be a disaster. Absolutely. And they are waiting for the Western world to come to the point where the Western world begins to stimulate again, and then they can do so too. And do you think that was part of the agreement when she came over? Because she's been going to see the PBOC, which is weird. We've seen this suddenly he turns up in the US and that everybody's having talks, which came out of kind of nowhere. It feels that something in the background has changed, that everyone's like, listen, we can fight over trade and everything else, but we actually all need to solve this problem. Yeah, I think uh, the big problem they discussed was trade. And then the other thing was to help uh, Gary Newsom to potentially become a successor of Biden, uh, because Gary Newsom is well known. Uh, to the Chinese, uh, he's probably bought uh, all, already, uh, as most of the others in the Biden cabinet. Um, so I think this was a side effect. But the main issue was trade, because they said, listen, you have an election ahead uh, in a year's time. 
you need uh, a situation without problems and we need a situation without problems let's go a little bit softer for the time being yeah i think that that feels like that's the case um the other thing i want to talk about to go back to your again your geopolitical thoughts is we should see and are seeing a lot more onshoring and friendshoring as we change the global supply chains so that shifts opportunities into other places like mexico how are you, and india seems to be at the middle of all of this how are you thinking about the movement of supply chains elsewhere oh yeah it's uh, it's it's happening uh, it's very vibrant uh, actually uh, it's uh, cambodia it's uh, vietnam and the biggest beneficiary is uh, probably india and mexico uh, Mexico, I, it's interesting, I recently uh, spoke to a uh, major real estate uh, tycoon who, uh, you know, sold all his um, uh, real estate in Manhattan when Michael Bloomberg stepped down. He said, the, the left guys are coming, that's bad for real estate, so I uh, move on. And he went to other places in the world and he is now the biggest landlord in Mexico. Uh, so he says the Mexico is uh, more most attractive, and and more so on the industrial side than on the, you know, uh, residential side. And 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 Mexico is obviously. And I asked him who are, who is renting from you, and he says it's primarily the Chinese. You know, the Chinese are building their fact their manufacturing places in Mexico. And they send over maybe uh, one fifth of the of the labor force they need. They send over from China, and the rest is local. And then they build what they have at home. They build in Mexico and sell it and ship into the U.S. So it's a Mexican product made by Chai Mexicans um, uh, in Mexico. <laughs> We're also seeing in, in Europe, you know, I've always had the eye that Morocco is the Mexico of Europe. You know, it's a cheap, it's a cheap labor force that there's manufacturing a lot of cars there now. You know, it's three miles from Spain, you know, across the Straits of Gibraltar. And the Spanish have been talking about building a tunnel. But I do think Europe, I don't know whether it gets more worried about Eastern Europe because of Russia's influential sphere and it needs to move away. But how does Europe deal with this? Because Germany is just not competitive. It is on quality, obviously, but not on price. Yeah, it's uh, going down the drain. You know, this is what happens when you have some uh, childish people running the government. Uh, they destroy uh, everything. And Merkel started, actually, with the nonsense. And they just uh, accelerated it and uh, made it worse. Uh, Germany is not competitive anymore. Germany has underperformed uh, Italy for uh, almost four years now. Uh, economically, and that will continue. Uh, they are, when you look at unit labor costs, etc., Germany is outpriced. Uh, they are not competitive anymore. Um, they And the industry is adapting to that. They are moving production to other places, uh, particularly energy-intensive production. They move to other places because it's energy prices that is uh, a, a real killer in uh, in Germany. And of course, you have uh, the Czech Republic, uh, you have Poland, you have uh, Hungary. Uh, those places are uh, competitive places and they do good work and they are uh, 
reliable. Uh, they are reliable manufacturers, probably even more than, than Northern Africa, I would say. So I think uh, Eastern Europe is a beneficiary, but to a limited extent because of Russia. Uh, I think yeah. the Western narrative that Russia will eventually conquer uh, Europe again, I think that's nonsense. I think this is being misused by the Americans to uh, to keep the Europeans on their side and uh, and help them, etc. I I think that narrative is completely nonsense. The Russians wanted to do business. Putin wanted to do business with the West. Uh, I uh, listened to his uh, speech when he came into power in the German parliament uh, in 2001. And it was obvious he wanted to do business with the West. And he tried and he, he uh, tried many times. Germany did some more business with them, but the US were against that. And the US uh, were against the North Stream pipeline and all that kind of stuff because of what I described as the Euro Eurasian continental plate and what it could mean for integration and for the influence of the US that would decline. So I think the, the US just didn't like that and therefore they are spreading that narrative which is in my view completely wrong. I think they want to develop their economy and <clears throat> I do not know Russia very well. I've been to Moscow once and to the Kremlin once and, uh, and uh, I do not know the country. But I speak to people who know the country, Westerners who tra travel the country, and they say, you can go to many cities in, in uh, Russia, even further east, uh, that are very modern and where you have um, top uh, quality in terms of uh, restaurants and uh, hotels and service and uh, infrastructure. Uh, I think we get in the West, we get uh, the mainstream media's view that the Russians are so bad, etc. Of course, they are an emerging country and probably ever will be because their main products are commodities and warfare in a way. Uh, there are no consumer products they, they can sell in the market. Uh, <clears throat> but I think the Russians are not dangerous. Uh, uh, all you have to do is you have to deal with them. You have to trade with them. Uh, and I think uh, they would be a good partner. They, they had been a reliable partner up to the point uh, when, uh, when they were provoked with Ukraine-NATO membership. Yeah, it's going to be, look, it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out. Let's just talk down to asset allocation a little bit. You know, how do you think you've, you know, you've got a, a year of two sides here. So it's, you know, so we need to put time horizons into this as well. You know, long term, what, what are you bullish on? I, I'm figuring you're probably bullish on gold, which works in a geopolitical environment, falling rates, uncertainty. But what are, you, what are you kind of long-term bullish on and then how are you thinking about next year? If you believe that eventually we go down the inflationary path, as we described, and into a big crisis, uh, gold could also fall in that situation. It could also fall. You, you do not know. And, and, and stocks could also fall. But eventually, even if you have a currency reform at some point, eventually real assets recover. Nominal assets don't. Nominal assets are done. So I would definitely stay away from what is now the big trade, long bonds, 
it is a trade. It's not an investment. Uh, it's a trade and it's not an investment. Recently, uh, JP Morgan uh, uh, Treasury Desk uh, made a survey among their treasury clients. They have the highest treasury allocation, treasury bond allocation ever in the last 25 years. You know, that, that tells you that this trade is on the books of virtually everyone who is a little bit aggressive in the market. So uh, I think we have more to go. I, I thought we can go down to 370 and then maybe to 3% or so for the cycle low, around 3%. But after that, it's all the way up to new highs. And in stocks, uh, you know, I, I think you have to own productive investments. Uh, of course, stocks can go down 50%, you know, anytime uh, in that crisis that I described or more, but they will come back. Uh, and, and therefore, I think you have to time it. We cannot sell at the ultimate peaks and, and buy at the ultimate bottoms. But if we can take out a big chunk of in between the peaks and the bottoms, then I think we can have a very nice decade of good returns. And if you don't do that and you just sit in a passive portfolio, you run the risk of really selling out at the worst moment of history when it looks darkest. And, and I, I think that's the biggest risk of uh, less experienced investors. And therefore, I recommend that you uh, use some timing for the mini cycles. Makes sense. Felix, listen, thank you as ever for allowing me to pick your brains. Uh, it's always a fantastic conversation. And, you know, it's going to be a very interesting 2024 because we've got an election cycle as well. Who knows what happens there? Generally, governments tend to give out candy to the voters, you know, some stimulus somewhere. So, you know, it can add to that volatility you're talking about. But it should be a very interesting year. It should be a great year, uh, very volatile and good for those who know how to trade in the mini cycles. You know, uh, I think it's very difficult for buy and hold investors. OK, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Ralph. Thank you very much for having me. Always fantastic to talk to you. And uh, I hope next time we see each other in person. Yeah, I've not seen you in ages, so we need to sort that out. Yeah, so okay. I look forward to that. Okay, great. All right, my okay. friend. Take care. All Thank the best. Bye-bye. So Felix and I have long, deep experience in macro. We both know the world is broken. We know that the world reached its debt limits, and this is the big problem. We're also seeing, and both agree, that the world is more multipolar. But we diverge a lot on our views. You know, I'm not a bear on the dollar on a secular basis. Cyclically, yes, I believe the dollar is weaker in 2024. On a secular basis, I just think the dollar is still king. But over time, I can see the system changing. This fourth turning is going to go one of two ways. It's either going to go to the complete disruption of society in this kind of economic meltdown that Felix was alluding to, or it changes via technology, which is my viewpoint, and we change the productivity dial. But they're both stressful on society. Anyway, I hope you found it useful to hear Felix's views because they're very different to mine, and that's very important to me. 
I always want to hear people with different views. And so I can take it into account and you should too. Anyway, good luck out there and I'll see you next time. All of us together are living through the death of an old world and the birth of a new one. This is a fourth turning, but this is not the fourth turning of demographics or politics. This is the birth of the new technological age. This new world has a world of 3D printed rockets, crypto payments in space, discussions on the rights for humanoid robots, machine intelligence that may outperform our own, simulated worlds where autonomous AI agents write code for other autonomous AI agents. It's a world full of opportunity and full of difficulty too. You see, we are living history and it's happening much, much faster than any of us can comprehend. This is Reed's Law, Metcalfe's Law Squared. Humanity has never gone through anything like this. But we have to comprehend and understand what is happening. It is into this world that The Exponentialist is born. The Exponentialist is a new service from me, Ralph Powell, and David Mattin, author of New World, Same Humans. It's an almanac of the fastest period of change ever witnessed in the human history. A period of excitement, exhilaration, difficulty, and terror. And The Exponentialist really is for humans first and investors second. Yes, the opportunities are enormous all round. To find out more and get our special launch pricing, go to realvision.com forward slash the future.